Well, if you have your Bible, I'm going to ask you to turn to the book of Obadiah. Obadiah has one chapter, 21 verses. And hopefully, we'll be looking at Obadiah over the next three weeks. Now, as we begin our sermon series in Obadiah, this first message deals with pride. And pride is a peculiar concept for us in our culture. Because sometimes pride gets used with a positive connotation, and sometimes pride gets used um, with a negative connotation. In fact, if you look up the definition in the dictionary, it's there's competing definitions. It'll, you know, definition number one will present pride in a positive way. Definition number two, well, actually, it's the other way around. Definition number one will, will present it in a negative way. Definition number two will present it in a positive way. Sometimes pride is, is, is defined or presented in this like internal, internally oriented emotion that exalts in one's own, exalts one's own abilities. But then also it might say uh, on the second definition that pride is, is confidence in being part of a group or in, or, or, or a community. Okay, so that's sort of a positive connotation. You know, uh, I can think of, well, you guys know by now that I'm a big fan of the United States Marine Corps, right? You probably, if you, yeah, you know that. And one of their little taglines is the few, the proud, the Marines. And what, what that's supposed to communicate is that, wow, first of all, being part of the United States Marine Corps, you should take confidence. You should trust in the brotherhood of Marines as comrades in arms. And you should also be strengthened and, and have faith in your training, and just in the fact that you are one of a very few number who wear the title of the United States Marine. In fact, the the Marine Corps hymn has that line in it, proud to wear the title of United States Marine. Okay, and and that's a very positive way of thinking about pride. How about you two? They have a song, a great song. You You know what the... title of the song is, you probably know it, you know, in the name of love, but actually the name of that song is Pride. You know, you know what song I'm talking about? Yeah, and it, that's a pretty good song. In fact, you know, parts of that song kind of sound like Jesus, right? You know, uh, by the way, I'm not making any kind of comment about what I think Bono believes, okay? So don't read anything into that U2 comment, but the song itself is a pretty good song, and it, it, it gives pride sort of a positive connotation, right? But yet, um, and Aristotle, okay, philosopher, Aristotle, he, he also looked at pride as a good thing. But yet, we, we look at the scripture, especially the book of James, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. The book of Proverbs, wow, is full of condemnation against those who are proud. Pride comes before the fall, right? Pride comes before the fall. And how often in Scripture are disobedient people 
referred to as stiff-necked. And do you know what stiff-necked people are? They're proud. That's why their necks are stiff. They're too proud to bow. So the scripture gives us this very negative connotation of pride. So in our culture, pride sometimes is seen as good, sometimes seen as bad. Philosophers disagree. The dictionary has competing definitions of pride. This morning and over the next three weeks, we're going to get a clear word about this sometimes perplexing concept of pride. Because the text this morning really teaches us this one thing, that human pride competes with a holy God and only brings condemnation. Human pride competes with a holy God and only brings condemnation. So let's read together. Obadiah, chapter 1, verses 1 through 9. Thus says the Lord God concerning Edom. We have heard a report from the Lord, and a messenger has been sent out among the nations. Rise up. Let us rise against her for battle. Behold. I will make you small among the nations. You shall be utterly despised. The pride of your heart has deceived you. You who live in the clefts of the rock, in your lofty dwelling, who say in your heart, who will bring me down to the ground? Though you soar aloft like the eagle, though your nest is set among the stars, from there I will bring you down, declares the Lord. If these came to you, if plunders came by night, You have been destroyed. Would they not steal only enough for themselves? If grape gatherers came to you, would they not leave gleanings? How Esau has been pillaged, his treasures sought out. All your allies have driven you to your border. Those at peace with you have deceived you. They have prevailed against you. Those who eat your bread have set a trap beneath you. You have no understanding. Will I not on that day, declares the Lord, destroy the wise men of Edom and understanding out of Mount Esau? And your mighty men shall be dismayed, O Teman, so that every man from Mount Esau will be cut off. By slaughter. The book of the book of Obadiah is uh, the shortest. I think I said this already. It is the shortest book in the Old Testament. It's only twenty-one verses long. Very, but it, man, it packs a punch. It's it's you know big things come in small packages. I, I, I really believe that's true about the book of Obadiah, and. Obadiah, the prophet, who this this vision is attributed to, the writing of this prophecy is attributed to, we really don't know a whole lot about this one called Obadiah. In fact, there are 11, I think, 11 people in the Old Testament with the name Obadiah. It's a really common name, and there's really no reason to expect that any one of those guys, any one of those Obadiahs is the Obadiah that wrote this prophecy, who delivered this prophecy. But we do know something about the time in which, in the context in which Obadiah was, was written, or at least the, the prophecy was given. 
as you may or may not know, Jerusalem fell to the Babylonians in 586 B.C. And Edom fell to the Babylonians in 553 B.C. Okay, so in that 33-year time period, somewhere in between there, that's when this prophecy, uh, we understand, was, was given. Okay, because this prophecy is a, is a prophecy against Edom about their involvement in the fall of Jerusalem. In fact, this prophecy begins with, thus says the Lord God, concerning Edom. Now, let's just figure out who Edom is. Uh, if we want to talk about family relationships, Edom is a brother to Israel because Jacob, later named Israel, through whom the nation of Israel comes, his brother was Esau, and Esau is the one through whom the nation of Edom comes. So e Jacob and Esau, Israel and Edom, are brothers. So in family, they're brothers. Now, geographically, they're neighbors. You have Israel, and then kind of to the southeast or to the east, east of the Dead Sea, you have Edom in this really mountainous region. Okay, And so they're, they're both brothers and neighbors. And so if you're going to act brotherly or if you're going to behave neighborly, what would you expect? Friendship, support, perhaps even being allies. But here's what happened when Babylon came and, and sacked Jerusalem and hauled its inhabitants off into exile. Not only did Edom stand by and watch, they participated and also attacked Judah. They, they attacked Judah in their time of just Not only did they not come to their aid, but they gloated over them. They despised them and they participated in and the attack against them. And so because of that, God is saying this. Rise up. Let us rise against her for battle. Behold, I will make you small among the nations. You shall be utterly despised. God is putting out a call. The Lord God, the holy, sovereign ruler of the universe, he is putting out this call to the nations to come and attack Edom to punish them for their violence, mistreatment against Israel, and ultimately for their pride before God. And, and much of the book of Obadiah is God's message of judgment and impending discipline and destruction upon Edom for their pride and for their mistreatment of God's people. And you know, as we look at these first nine verses um, this morning and think about the perils of pride, as we think about the perils of pride, we really have to start with God. That God, who is holy and sovereign, rules over all. God, who is holy and sovereign, rules overall that that's that's really like salted throughout the entire book of Obadiah I mean 
as we read through Obadiah, we see God calling the nations to attack Edom. Who does that? Who, who determines whether or not the nations of the world will, will come and, and attack one particular people? Who decides that? Only a sovereign God who rules over all. Who, who declares that he will bring a people down? Those who in their pride say, who will bring us low? Who will bring us down? And God says, I, even I will bring you down. Who says that and then does it? Because remember, in 553 B.C., Edom is brought low. They are brought down. They are a conquered people. So who declares, who declares that he will do something and then accomplishes it on a global stage? Who does that except a holy and sovereign Lord? Who, who looks into the heart of a people and says to them, the pride of your heart has deceived you. Who, who can look into not just the heart of a man, but into the heart of a people, the heart of a nation, and say, the pride of your heart that I see, that's deceived you. Who does that except a holy and sovereign God who rules over all? Who, who tells a people, a nation, that all of their allies will turn against them? And they do. Who declares that the men of a nation will be destroyed, all killed? They, they, they will be cut off by slaughter. Who does that? Who says that and then accomplishes it? Other than a holy and sovereign God who rules over all. So as we read and look through and study these first nine verses in the whole of the book of Obadiah. And let's face it, the whole of scripture in the background and above and, and, and around that is this truth. The reality that a holy and sovereign God rules over all. One, that's important for us to realize and remember because it's a truth of God's word. It's a truth that we've got to understand, know, and must impact our lives. But it also helps us kind of understand the next truth in this passage of scripture, which is pride is an affront to God. Pride is a sin against God. It is an affront to him. It is an offense to him. Well, why is pride so horrible and heinous before God? Because God is holy and sovereign and rules over all. That's why it is such an affront, because what is pride? Well, first of all, it's self-exaltation. It is trust in oneself over anything else. It is confidence in one's own abilities, own wisdom, own strength. Get, see, see the theme there? 
It's, it's, it's trust in self over everything, including God. When you and I have pride, what we are doing is we're trusting self over God. We're saying, I do this, not the Lord. I have accomplished this on my own, by myself, without any help. And that's just simply not true, is it? In fact, I think we could say, without any you know, worry of being wrong on this point, when we have pride, what we're doing is we are taking glory that belongs to God and ascribing it to ourselves. And do you know what God says about that? God says, at least twice in, in the book of Isaiah, I am the Lord and that is my name. I will not share my glory with another. God simply says, I won't do that. So we, when, when we have pride, we are attempting to wrestle away from God what he says he will not give to another. Do you really, do you really want to find yourself wrestling with God over glory that is his. I mean, just can you picture, you know, picture yourself, no, that's mine. That's mine, you know, and you both hands and you're wrapping your feet around it and trying to pull this. No, God, that's my glory. I want that. Give that to me. In case you didn't know, you will always lose a wrestling match with God. All right? I mean, you're, you're always going to lose that match. You and I will always lose a wrestling. We will never overcome him. We will never, ever wrestle his glory away from him because God says, I won't share my glory with another. But in our pride, we try to wrestle God's glory away from him and and. And put it on ourselves. And so when we show that kind of lack of faith and trust in God and we put that kind of faith and trust in ourselves, not only do we try to you know, receive, wrestle God's glory away, but we just simply worship ourselves. Pride becomes self-worship. We exalt ourselves and minimize everything and everybody else, including God. We become idolaters. Because when we worship, do we understand that, right? Church, do you understand that when you worship one other than God, you are an idolater? We become idolaters when we worship ourselves in pride. And remember, pride is deceitful. The pride of our hearts will deceive us. God declared that to Edom. He said, the pride of your heart has deceived you. Well, what? how had the pride of their hearts deceived them? Well, it deceived them into trying to wrestle God's glory away from him and, and take it on themselves, uh, trust and faith in themselves instead of the Lord, um, thinking that they were somehow immune to God's judgment, that they were immune to God's discipline. Because... God addresses this in that language about um, 
those, verse 3, you who live in the clefts of the rock in your lofty dwelling, who say in your heart, who will bring me down to the ground? Though you soar aloft like the eagle, though your nest is set among the stars, from there I will bring you down. Literally, Edom was in a mountainous region, and, and many of their cities were in elevations of, of up to like 5,000 feet. So they certainly seemed impenetrable, safe from harm. No one could touch them. Who could, who could, who could cause them any trouble, any difficulty? Well, in their minds, no one. They felt that they were indeed immune. And again, that was the deception of the pride of their hearts. So not only not only were they deceived with stealing God's glory, deceived into worshiping self, but they were deceived into thinking that they were immune and safe from any discipline from God. That's what pride does to us. Pride deceives us. The pride of our heart deceives us into thinking things that are not true, to believing things that are not true. Somehow, we think that we did it, that it's about us, that in my own strength or ability, I accomplished or did something, that I am the master of my own discipleship, that I'm the master of my own sanctification, that, that my transformation depends on me, or, or that the transformation of another is all up to me, and if I have the right, if I communicate rightly, and if I have the, just the, the, the best disciplines, and if I, all of these things, and you know, please don't misunderstand me, spiritual disciplines are important. And, and we must, we must be disciplined spiritually, but never believing that, that our discipline did it. God does it. He is the one who, who sanctifies us. He is the one who, you know, is the master of our discipleship. It is Him, not us. Yes, we participate, and, and, and we're called to participate through spiritual disciplines, but our confidence cannot be in the disciplines. It must be in the God of the disciplines, the Savior of those disciplines. That's where our confidence must be. Pride deceives us. God, who is holy and sovereign, rules over all. Pride is an affront, an offense, an abomination to a holy God. And God will bring down the proud. Make no mistake about it. God will bring down the proud. God declares. And when God declares, he does it. When God says it, he accomplishes it. God, who is like no other, okay, declares the end from the beginning, from ancient times, things yet to come, saying, My counsel will stand and I will accomplish all of my purpose. That is God's speech about himself. 
And then he proves it to be true by always accomplishing his purpose. And if he says, my purpose is to bring Edom low. If he says, my purpose is to bring down the proud. Then you and I must know that he will accomplish it. His purpose will be accomplished and the, pri- the proud will be brought down. The proud will be brought low. And lest we forget... Verse 4, though you soar aloft like the eagle, though your nest is set among the stars, from there I will bring you down, declares the Lord. Verse 5, if thieves came to you, if plunders came by night, how you have been destroyed. Would they not steal only enough of themselves? If great gatherers came to you, would they not leave gleanings? How Esau has been pillaged, his treasures sought out. All your allies have driven you to your border. Those at peace with you have deceived you. They have prevailed against you. Those who eat your bread have set a trap beneath you. You have no understanding. Will I not on that day, declares the Lord, destroy the wise men of Eden, Edom and understanding out of Mount Esau? And your mighty men shall be dismayed, O Teman, so that every man from Mount Esau will be cut off by slaughter. When God says he'll bring down the proud, he means he'll bring them down. In destruction. First, God uses this language, and we've already talked about this, of how, how Edom thought they were safe, impenetrable, free from, from, from any destruction, discipline, or punishment because of their, their mountain fortress. And God said, I'll bring you low. And then he said, not only will I bring you low, but, but I, I will bring you low in such a way that goes beyond what one would normally expect. He says, you know, if you were robbed, if, 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 if robbers came, if burglars came, if thieves came, they would steal from you and you would miss that, but they would only steal what they could use, what they needed. They would leave something, but God says, I'll leave nothing. And then, then he uses uh, an, an image of harvesting grapes. Yeah, you know, if, if the harvesters came and, and picked the grapes... They would leave gleanings. In other words, they'd leave something. There'd be something left. You could go behind the harvesters and find some grapes because they would leave something. God says, I will leave nothing. When I bring you low, I will leave nothing. In fact, I will destroy all the wise men of Edom. I will take even understanding away. Did you hear that about how thorough God's judgment is. And hopefully we understand how much of an affront our pride is to God because God's response, God's response to our pride ought to give us an indication of how much of an offense it is to a holy God who sovereignly rules over all. But God says, I will even take away, I will destroy all wisdom, I will take away all understanding and every Man of Edom will be slaughtered. That's how thorough God's bringing low of the proud will be. Certainly, certainly we see. I hope that we see that human pride 
competes with a holy God and brings only condemnation. But there, there is still one more truth that, believe it or not, we, we do see in this passage of Scripture, and that is that pride is antithetical to the gospel. Antithetical simply means inconsistent or opposite. So pride is inconsistent with the gospel. Why does, why does God react this way to pride? Why does God judge pride? Because the gospel judges pride. Why does God judge pride? Because it will never lead anyone to the truth, to the gospel, and to salvation. Pride will never lead there. Jesus says that all of the Old Testament, the law and the prophets, point to him. And this, this judgment upon pride in Obadiah foreshadows the gospel's judgment upon pride. And, and the reason that pride is so much of a problem here is because it is so opposite to the gospel. And the Old Testament is, of course, always preparing the way for the Lord. It is foreshadowing the gospel. It is, it is proclaiming sort of the, 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 the gospel not yet fully communicated. The gospel in its infancy. The pre-evangelistic gospel. The Old Testament is always proclaiming that, always pointing to that, always foreshadowing that. And so, just as God will judge the, the pride of Edom, and they will be rejected because of it. The gospel judges pride in us. And our pride can keep us from believing in the gospel. Listen to what it says in the book of Ephesians, chapter 2, verse 4. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the ages to come he might show the immeasurable riches of grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand. That we should walk in them. That's the gospel. That God is doing this work of salvation in people. And it's a gift of his grace. And it's, and it's not of us. There's no room for human pride. There's no room for us to have confidence in ourselves. Or, or think that we by our righteousness, by our piety, 
by our good choices. We, by anything, will attain God's favor and reach salvation. No, it's a gift of grace so that no one may boast. There is no room for human boasting in the gospel. We can boast in Christ alone. That's the only boasting that we have. The only boasting we have is to boast in Christ and what He has done. The reality is that God is indeed holy and sovereign and He rules over all. And being holy means that there is no imperfection in Him at all. And so God in His Complete perfection has created man, mankind, men and women. He's created us. And we are imperfect and therefore sinners, therefore separated from God. Because we are filled with pride. We begin to worship self. We begin to take glory that belongs to God and try to wrestle that away and ascribe it to ourselves and we trust in our own abilities or what we believe to be our own abilities and then it becomes all about us and pretty soon we think this is our world and we're God. And therefore we are separated from this holy and sovereign God who's the ruler over all but then God who is rich in mercy and in his grace has sent his son Jesus, who lived on this world perfectly, never knowing any sin, lived without sin, yet suffered and died through a mockery of a trial, crucifixion, taking upon himself the punishment of our sin, becoming a substitute for you and I taking the punishment of our sin upon himself, becoming a propitiation, taking the wrath of God on himself for our pride. That, that, that wrath that God is declaring he's going to pour out on Edom, the, the slaughter and the removal of understanding and the complete destruction, Jesus took that instead of you and I for our sin. was laid in a tomb. And on the third day, rose again, demonstrating his victory over sin and death, the promise of a resurrection for us, and the assurance that God has accepted his sacrifice for sin. So that those who respond in repentance and faith are assured of the forgiveness of sin and the hope of eternal life. That's the gospel. And who's doing all of the work? God. Who's doing all the action? God. God, you know, he, he devised it. He brought it about. He, he worked it out. He gives it as a gift. He empowers even the response of repentance and faith. God himself empowers that in us. Where is, where is the place for human pride? The answer is there is none. And even living the Christian life, because look at what it says in Ephesians 2.10. 
We are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works. What? That he, God, prepared for us ahead of time so that we might walk in them. Even even the the good things we do, the good works we do as believers, the, the way that we walk in obedience to Christ, even that is a work of God given to us by his grace. Where is the place for pride in that? The reality is there is no place for pride in all of that. You know, this morning, um, I feel like there's multiple ways that we can respond to the truth um, that we've heard. You know, prophetic passages of Scripture like this, um, they always remind us that God is both holy and sovereign. And those are attributes of God that we need reminding of. We forget that God is holy. We, we just think he's better than me. Well, God's better than me. God's better than us. Well, God's more than that. God is holy. That means he is completely and utterly alien and different and set apart from you and I. Whatever is true about us is not true about God. We need to hear that. We need to know that God is holy, that he's completely different than us. And and, and he's not just better. He's just not better than us. He's different. He's in a different league, different dimension. (laughs) You know, I'm not trying to say that any kind of weird Star Trek way, okay? Yeah, that's not what I mean. Okay. I mean that God is holy and we're not, and we don't approach holiness at all. Okay? And without God there is no holiness. And He is sovereign. That means He is in control of everything. And we think we're in control of some things and we're not. We're not. Okay, I I might sit in the driver's seat of my car. And my foot might be on the gas and less often on the brake, <laughs> okay, to be honest, all right? And my hands, my hand, or at least hand, might hold the steering wheel, okay? But even there, God controls that. God controls my car. I don't. Now, does that mean I can take my foot off the gas and my hands off the wheel? No, it doesn't mean that, okay, because I'm not going to tempt God in that way. I'm not going to test him in that way, but... There's nothing that's outside of his control. He is sovereign. And by definition, that means in control of everything. And we need to be reminded of that because we forget. So today, how are those truths of God's holiness and God's sovereignty that we have seen so clearly in this passage today, how are those going to impact your life right now? How will they, how do they impact your life? And then, simply put, Pride is sin. There's no way around that. Whatever you may have thought about the word pride when you walked in here today, know this. Pride is sin. Therefore, repent. Perhaps today this message is calling you to repent of pride. Even as a, maybe even you as a believer in Christ, still Dealing with pride, struggling with pride. I know that's true in my life. 
some of you might later on today tell me, oh, Jim, that was a good sermon. Don't. I, I, I will feel proud, perhaps, about that. Um, because I struggle with pride. But what has God called me to do? To repent. In fact, I, I, I hope I can say instead of that I struggle with pride, I want to be able to say I'm repenting of pride. That's what I want to say. I want to say I'm repenting of pride. Perhaps today the call of this message is a call to you to repent of pride. And then finally, I want to, I want to speak just briefly to those who are here this morning who might not yet be believers in Jesus. You're not yet trusting in Christ alone for the forgiveness of sin and the hope of eternal life. Please do not let pride keep you from believing the gospel. Because pride will deceive you. My friend, do not be deceived. Do not be deceived by your own heart. Do not be deceived by the pride of your own heart. Do not let pride keep you from believing the gospel. Pride, human pride, competes with a holy and sovereign God and will only lead to condemnation. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, forgive us of our pride. Protect us from it. God, may we see you as you are, holy and sovereign and ruler over all. And God, may the gospel be preeminent and our pride dissolved. Pray in Jesus' name.